In this week's update, keeping the ebbs and flows in perspective, quality non-mining remains the best fishing spot, and is the current surge becoming a concern? My name's Gary Davis. As always, this is general advice only, and please remember to like and subscribe to the video. All right, we'll start with some perspective as usual, and this might be stating the bleedingly obvious, but it still amazes me how many people really don't pay enough attention to this or pay any attention to this. Um, but the suggestion of a market type, and because we've had a great run in both America and in Australia um, at the index level, then inevitably the bears are coming out to play and they're, they're all falling over themselves trying to call a top. And it just gets everyone all emotional. And, and that, of course, leads to decisions which are, uh, you know, which are generally pretty ineffective. So we're, we're seeing it again. It happens, it happens constantly whenever the market has had a decent run. So the trick is trying to avoid the smallest corrections is, is virtually impossible. It can't be done. It can't be done with any degree of consistency. If you can do it every now and again, it's probably more down to luck than anything else. So you need to forget about trying to avoid the smallish corrections. Um, it's just too hard. And more importantly, the decisions that you make about buying and selling and taking profit need to be made in the context of your plan. And if you don't have a plan, then you shouldn't even be in the market, to be honest, because all you've got is a series of disjointed buying and selling decisions. And that's never a good way to approach the market. So any decision that you make is, is not about some guru calling a top in the market and then you panic and you sell everything because you, know, you don't want to give back the profit that you've got. And I, and I get that. I understand that emotion. I used to experience that in the early days as well. But what somebody else thinks about the market could be completely irrelevant to your plan and how you should act. So you've got to have a plan and you've got to try and remain very unemotional about what the market is likely to do. Unless you're a day trader, of course, that's a, a different question when you're, you're buying and selling on a, on a whole different level. But look, day trading or very short-term trading is a very, very tough gig, um, particularly in markets that are volatile, because if you're going to short-term trade, you've got to set tight stops. And if you set tight stops, you're just going to get knocked out by irrational uh, volatility. And, you know, we've, we've seen that in the last couple of weeks. We saw it last week in America. There was, there was a sell-off on the Wednesday on the Fed comments, and then Thursday completely reversed that, and Friday followed through more to the upside. If you're trying to short-term trade that sort of market, you're just going to get your head handed to you on a plate over and over again. So small corrections should be tolerated, in my view, because the most effective time frame for investing or even trading is really multiples of months and multiples of years is the best, most effective time frame. It's the larger corrections that you want to try and avoid. And there are certainly signposts that, that are good indicators of that. I, I uh, uh, highlighted that at the end of um, uh, 2022. And I've revisited that on, on multiple occasions. I won't do it again today. But the, the, big, uh, the big reversals in the market are not that difficult to pick. 
to be honest. And that's why I spend so much time in these videos looking at the um, intra-market flows of money, because when that occurred at the start of um, 2023, the flow of money in the US out of technology into other sectors was as obvious as the nose on your face. So that was a pretty easy one to call. So it's just those really big ones that you need to avoid. Just a bit more perspective to follow through on that. The vast majority of any successful investor's gains are going to be made in a small fraction of their holdings. That's just the reality of the market. You know, you don't get that many massive winners in a lifetime. And so you've got to let them run. And, and if you chop them off too soon, then you're, you know, you're constantly cutting the, the flowers off the, uh, off the top of the plant and it'll never get anywhere. So that's just the reality of the market. So you've got to let the, the real quality long-term compounders run until the market tells you otherwise and, of course, relative to your plan. So the hierarchy of thought that I go through very, very regularly, at least once a week, and sometimes multiple times a week, is this. Is the market sentiment at risk of a large shift? And note that I, I meant, I said market sentiment, not the actual price of the index itself. So is the market sentiment at, at risk of a large shift? Is this holding that you're looking at, so the individual stock, is that a quality compounder for the long term? Is that why it's in your portfolio? Because if it is, then you probably need to cut it a bit more slack and don't be so ready to take profit or to sell out of it. The next thing that my mind goes to is, is the weighting of that holding, is it an issue? Has it become so large that if it does pull back significantly, as every stock on the planet will do from time to time, is that going to be you know, too emotionally draining so therefore, is weighting an issue and should I be looking at perhaps putting a tight stop on part of that weighting just, just to deal with it? The next thing is, what is the valuation of that holding relative to its growth rate? Or put it in other terms, what's the peg ratio? Is the peg ratio less than one? If, if so, then valuation is, um, is generally not an issue. And even if it's greater than one, it doesn't necessarily knock it out straight away. And then the final thing, but probably the most important thing is, what is the chart telling me? Is the momentum to the upside, is it waning or is it still strong? And we'll have a look at one of those in, uh, in just a minute. Now, when we look at US valuations, again, just, you know, one of many perspectives you can have on the market. The Magnificent Seven are currently, as an average, are currently trading on a peg ratio of 1.7. Now that's high. Anything above one is high-ish. Getting up towards two is very high. So that means if the growth rate in earnings was 20%, then it's trading on a PE of nearly 35 or 40 times, which is certainly the case for Microsoft, Amazon, etc. all those stocks. So on a, on a long-term historical basis, there is no question that the Magnificent Seven are trading at extreme levels of valuation. Now that doesn't mean that they can't hold those levels of valuation and continue on because artificial intelligence is driving a lot of this and artificial intelligence is real. This isn't hype. It's been around for a long time, 
but we're just getting to the stage now where the, the, the expansion of the commercial opportunities is going to be such, you know, this, this is going to be an incredible revolution. Um, it is already, but it's going to continue to accelerate. So it is real, but there is a point where valuation just gets too much. And certainly we're at the top end for the Magnificent Seven. But if you look at the rest of the market, if you, and you take those seven stocks out, those seven tech stocks, then the rest of the market trades on a peg ratio of 0.85, less than one, and therefore seemingly, on average, good value. Because that means that if the earnings growth rate, let's say, was, was 15% across the market, then we're trading on a P of 12 or 10 or something of that nature. So at that very coarse, broad brush level, and there's a lot more to valuation than that, but you know, it's, it's not a bad indicator. The rest of the market is presenting value on average, and some stocks are presenting extreme value. So what should we aspire to? What are the sort of stocks that we should be looking for? Um, and I'll, I'll point out that, you know, I'm all over this in the Insiders Club and portfolio analysts. There's a long line of stocks being rolled out that fulfill these criteria. I'm looking for earnings per share growth where I can feel highly confident that the stock can sustain that at 30% per annum long-term average. That's not every year, but that's, that's a long-term average, let's say over a three or five-year period. And if I don't think that a stock, first of all, is capable of doing it, and secondly, is highly likely to do it, then I just go and look for something else that does. And there are plenty of them. I'm then also looking for PE ratios of less than 15 to 20 times. And again, there are, there are plenty of those out there if you know where to look. So when you divide one into the other, that gives you a peg ratio of, of well less than one. And um, yeah, as I said, there are, there are plenty of those. And then furthermore, return on equity is an important indicator that I always look at. And I'm looking for consistent generation of, of returns in excess of 20% on a long-term basis. So if you go out looking exclusively for those sort of stocks, then I would suggest that you're probably going to have a pretty good year and a pretty good investing experience. So that's the perspective to start with. Uh, the S&P was up 1.4% for the week, despite a, a significant and irrational sell down in the middle of the week. Um, in response to what the Fed had to say, the fact that the market sold off heavily just because Powell threw a bucket of cold water over an interest rate cut in March, I mean, that was just an unrealistic expectation. So that was, it was pretty dumb. A couple of the highlights, Meta had a very strong uh, Q4. So again, this, these are real results. This is not anticipation of what might be happening. This was a strong result. Um, they also initiated a $50 billion buyback and also declared their first ever dividend. So lots of reasons for shareholders to, um, to reward Meta. And we'll look at that chart. Uh, Amazon easily beat consensus and jumped about 8%. But look, there is a bit of a worry for the, for the market, just something to keep an eye on. And that's that regional banks, and if, if you think back to 2023, there was that, um, 
failure in, in the American regional banking system for, for a month or two. A lot of people were worried that it could bring down the entire banking system. It didn't. Uh, and we've seen a recovery in US regional banks. But now, maybe an early indicator, maybe nothing, but regional banks are certainly uh, turning down again on an on a absolute basis and on a relative basis as well. So that's one to watch. US dollar index was higher, and just sorry, going back to that, and that's one of those things that can impact sentiment. If, if there was to be another blow up, another failure or two in regional banking, that can shift sentiment very quickly, as we saw at the start of 2023. Our US dollar index almost back to 104, um, the yield 4.02, uh, so it came down from a high of uh, 4.15, I think, last week. Uh, the VIX, though, remained pretty relaxed about the whole thing, still sitting under 14, which is pretty low on a historical basis. And the 10-year, two-year spread widened a little bit, but still uh, just mildly negative. Let's jump in and look at some charts. So this is the regional banking index. Let's take a, a wider view. So this index peaked out in January of 2022, had a, a huge slide, lost 50% of its value, and with a um, precipitous fall in March of 2023 with all those uh, issues and some failures that um, if you're across the market regularly, you'll, you'll probably remember. Now, since then, it's consolidated. It's then played catch-up uh, because everyone started getting you know, pretty relaxed. But look at what's just happened in the last, um, well, since we had a short-term peak in the middle of December. So the last six weeks, it's stalled. And in the last week, it started to fall apart. So that is potentially an indicator that there are problems um, in the regional banking system again in America. Let's look at this on a relative comparison basis to see whether this is you know, this is an early warning of of more trouble in banking, and of course that that wouldn't be good for anybody. So if we look at this is over the last year, uh, this is the S and P index in red, uh, XLF, the finance, the overall finance index that includes everything, uh, in is in the middle, and uh, KBE, which is the the regional banking index, uh, this was where it fell off a cliff. In March, April of last year, it then underperformed for quite a few months until people stopped worrying about regional bank failures. Starting in the last quarter of last year, so when when the market turnaround happened, we've had a big surge in KBE, not only uh, individually but also on a relative basis as well. So you can see that this blue line is playing catch up to the finance, the overall finance index and also to the S&P. But now it's stalled and that gap is widening again quite dramatically. Now, early days might, might come to nothing, but as I said, well worth watching. All right, let's just look at some of the things that contributed. Um, and this is earnings season, so these are, these are real numbers. Amazon beat expectations significantly. Look at the market response on Friday and the volume. 
um, very, very impressive. Somewhat, you'd suggest that if you look at the volume on Thursday, a bit of it was out there in the market uh, before they made their announcement as well. This is Meta. It was up, I think, around 14% on uh, Friday after announcing their earnings after market on, on Thursday. So these are huge moves. And when you get moves like this, you you almost almost certainly in cert, certainly in inverted commas, but you almost certainly get a lot more long term follow through to the upside. Now it's possible that we could get a retest of the breakout and not change anything. This could be an overreaction, and Meta over the next few weeks works its way back to four oh seven. However. I think that's, given the size of the gap, I think that's unlikely. And I think if you look at Amazon and Meta in a few months' time, or even a few days' time, you're probably going to see the, <clears throat> the price higher. That's just the, the nature of the response was so emphatic. And you just think about all the institutions that are now underweight or were underweight, these stocks. They have to buy them, but they can't all get filled overnight. And that's why the price continues to the upside for a considerable amount of time for these sort of stocks. It's just the dynamics of the market. Institutions cannot get the amount of stock they want quickly. Otherwise, they just completely blow the price out of the water. So that process grinds on for a period of time. Um, Google was a bit the opposite. Google disappointed and the market reaction was fairly emphatic there. We, we dropped about six, 7% in Google and decent volume to the downside as well. So Google is in a, in a bit of a different category. And as a consequence, they're going to lag for a period of time, lag on a relative basis. They might, the price might go up, but I bet you that the price doesn't go up as fast as Amazon and Meta does. So Google will probably be a relative underperformer for a period of time. But look, some stocks are doing outrageously well, and this is not a recommendation, um, but this is a, a retailer, Abercrombie & Fitch, that obviously have their act well and truly together. This is a weekly chart. So this rise started in May of last year. So it's been running now for, what's that, about eight months. And the reason that I put this chart up is that when charts do this, they just go and go and go with almost no pullback at all. It's just a little pause and then we're off again. Then what you tend to find is that they go on for far longer than what you would reasonably expect. Um, and they go a lot further than what you would reasonably expect because it's, it's easy to look at that chart and say, oh, oh you know, I've missed it. It's all over. I, I wouldn't buy in up here. Yet when you look at the fundamentals and the valuation, this is actually still good value. Now, it's not a recommendation because it, you know, it's had a great run and it might pull back, but that's the reality. The valuation is still appealing despite this move from under 30 to 110. And there are plenty of stocks in the U.S., that, uh, that looks something like that. So even though we may get some sort of short-term 
top and short-term pullback, rest, consolidation, call it whatever you will, in the US market, there are still stocks that are doing this. And that, that is hugely exciting to me. And that's why I'm so bullish on 2024. I'm just completely ignoring the, the people that are falling over themselves trying to call a top. Because it's, it's just, you know, you're missing out on amazing opportunity by having a negative mindset. All right, let's look at the S&P. So this is the S&P on a weekly. So clearly the breakout has been confirmed. It was confirmed last week. It's been reconfirmed this week. And we've still got quite a, quite a lot of earnings yet to come through. So we may well see some, uh, some further strength in, um, in that area. Let's look at, sorry, it's what I wanted. It's the one I wanted. Okay. So this is the S and P versus the Russell, the Russell 2000. So large caps, large cap, broad based S and P index versus small caps. It's been a long-term uptrend, meaning it's outperforming. Short-term downtrend, meaning small caps were playing catch-up because the S&P was still rising. It's just that the Russell was rising even faster. That's why that line went down. But look what's happened in the last week or two weeks since earnings season started and the overwhelming impact of the Amazons and the Metas on the S&P and on the NASDAQ has just swamped out the Russell. So it's a bit hard to to actually determine what's happening with the Russell 2000. NASDAQ versus the S&P, of course, still marching to the upside, still outperforming because of big tech. Really importantly, semiconductors versus the S&P, no change and significant outperformance still. Um, now some of that is down to NVIDIA, admittedly, but um, the semiconductor sector from a fundamental point of view, it's not to say price hasn't already reflected some of this, but the semiconductor sector is coming out of a relative fundamental trough in terms of the businesses. And 2024, 2025 actually looks a heck of a lot better from a fundamental point of view. So the price of semiconductors has already done well. Is too much now factored in, in stocks like NVIDIA and Broadcom? Uh, maybe, maybe, but the growth rates there are still very strong. Let's look at the US on a relative basis over the last quarter. So leading the way, the aggressive sectors, communication services, technology, finance, uh, then healthcare, then consumer discretionary, and then we've got staples down the bottom. So, you know, I can tell you for all the bears out there, when consumer staples is a consistent laggard in the market, we are not near a top because the institutions know what's going on. And what actually creates a top is the fact that the institutions perceive overvaluation or whatever it is that they perceive trouble on the horizon economically, but they start to rotate out of the aggressive sectors and into the more defensive sectors. And that's what causes a flip over from consumer discretionary to consumer staples and out of technology into other more 
defensive areas of the market. That's what create. That's what signals and creates a top. So when when the consumer staples are down near the bottom of the pecking order, then you know you know. Let's look at this on a yearly basis. It just it never seems to amaze me the number of people that want to buy into this bearish market top um, rhetoric. And there's a there's a lot of it out there at the moment. But look at consumer staples. They've been down the bottom of the pack for twelve months. I can assure you, if we were close to a major top in the market, XLP would be up here somewhere on a relative basis. Let's zoom in a little bit more. Look at the last month. No real change. So nothing has really shifted in the last month um, compared to what it has been over the last quarter. So it's, you know, it's still, still game on in the US. Let's look at Australia. Over the last year, information technology has led the way, but on the same common basis. So let's go back to the start. So they're all starting from the same point. So information technology has led the way, but there was a significant period of underperformance. From August of 2023 until November of 2023, this line started to get come down and rapidly and get closer to these other lines. That means that, that the information technology sector um, was underperforming dramatically. And we saw big falls in stocks like Wise Tech Global and Zero and stocks of, of that ilk and so dragged it down. But look at what's happened since the start of November, again, with the big reversal in the market in late October in America. And we've now re-established quite dramatic outperformance from X, XIJ. Finance is doing reasonably well. Energy started to pick up again. Then we've got materials, healthcare, and small caps. So that's, on a, that's for the last year. Let's go into the last quarter. And healthcare, as you can see, has been outperforming significantly, but Here's XIJ, the, the information technology sector, coming from, you know, lagging down here, and it's really playing catch up very quickly. But also XSO, so small cap index, is playing catch up as well. So very interesting there. So that's the that's the setup in uh, in the market at the moment. Let's just look at the currencies. Bit of a blip in the US dollar, but we're still within an overall big picture trading range. And there's the Australian dollar. We closed at about 64 and a half. So just confirming that's where we finished with the dollar. Our index was up 1.9% across the week. We are at breakout territory. Um, and with finance doing well, the tech sector doing well, and materials also regaining some traction, then the ASX 200 will, will probably, you know, kick on from here. But anyway, that index doesn't worry me too much. Um, so I think I've talked through pretty much all of this. Healthcare remains the medium term leader, but the tech sector is taking, is grabbing background very, very quickly. And so there are certainly opportunities for that re renewed momentum in the tech sector. And it's really small caps in Australia where there are some real bright spots. 
Precious metals, gold up $22 to 2040. It's really just a big picture, high level consolidation in, uh, in gold. And I guess when, when you look at it week by week, it can get a bit boring. If you look at it twice a year, then, you know, you might think that gold's looking pretty good. So it all depends a bit on your perspective. Translating to Australian dollars because of the drop in our currency that uh, kicked the gold price up to 31.62, which is very profitable territory. If we look at um, gold miners globally, GDXJ, boring, sideways, not much happening. But at home, there are some brighter performances, uh, certainly amongst um, the market leaders in gold in Australia. So let's take a look at at that. First of all, just check in on the six two hundred. So there is the uh, there's the breakout uh, confirmed. Be very interesting to see whether we get good follow through in this this week to come. Gold on a daily basis, bit bit of an upward move, but if we look at it on a weekly, is really we're still just hanging around sideways. We've been going sideways now for about ten weeks in the middle of an uptrending range. So the bottom of this was November of 2022. So it's about 15 months ago. So if you look at the gold price a couple of times a year, then you would think things were pretty good. If you look at it every week, you'd be yawning, not much happening. So that's the gold market. Uh, other commodities, copper and nickel didn't change much. It's, it's still the same situation. The long-term being more than two years out for copper looks great. Nickel, very, very cloudy because of what's happening in Indonesia. And Indonesia is just grabbing um, very quickly an enormous share of, of the global nickel market and certainly depressing the price in the process. Crude oil was down again, got up to 78, 79 last week, back down to 72 and a half. And it's really just so geopolitical, geopolitically driven at the moment, what's happening in the Red Sea and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, a difficult one to know what's coming next because it can just be a decision by the cities or a decision by OPEC that can move the, the oil price significantly. All I can offer is that my conviction still is that if we look out over the next five to 10 years, that the oil price is going to move significantly higher. It has to, because um, demand is not dropping off at all at the moment. And the underinvestment is, is really going to start to um, have an impact because all oil fields, as soon as they're put into production, start to go into long-term decline. And um, so you combine long-term decline of some of the world's biggest oil fields with massive underinvestment and continued underinvestment. And the, the eventual eventuality is you've, you've got to get a higher oil price to compensate. Uh, just quickly on uranium, the, the world's biggest uranium producer, Kazatprom, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, has confirmed now what the market has known about for weeks. That's they've got some real production issues that are not short term. And um, so that is going to impact uh, the supply side. And we've got prices still holding above $100 a pound. 
We've got stocks, uranium stocks, producers, emerging producers around the world rocketing in price in anticipation. Is too much priced in? Yeah, I, I don't know. I find it difficult to value uranium stocks because most of them, if they were former producers, they're coming from loss and they're trading on apparent high PEs. But what, it, what the, the unknown factor for me is, is how fast and how far are earnings going to rocket in this new sort of environment? Yeah, difficult one, but certainly it's a very buoyant sector. There's a spot copper chart, really just a big sideways band at the moment. There's a spot nickel chart over the last five years. So copper was, was the last uh, 12 months or so. This is the last five years. So you can see we're starting to get down to the levels that we were at around the GFC. So not good for nickel miners. There's the crude oil chart. We got almost 80, but back down closer to 70 now. Wrapping it up, is there any change to my bullish view? No, not at all. I've been putting more time and effort into US uh, research, particularly in small caps, because I just think globally, small caps have been drowned out for years um, relative to the large cap stocks. And, and it's a great environment for small caps to bounce back. Inflation peaked, interest rates peaked. The US jobs market holding up well, US economy holding up relatively well. It's a fabulous environment for small caps to play catch up. So I've been putting a lot more time and effort into US research and also into research with Australian small caps as well, predominantly non-mining. And that's got me even more bullish on 2024. There are just fabulous opportunities in America. So many of them are doing what ANF is doing that I showed you earlier. They're, they're trending powerfully and those trends are not hype. They're, they're trending higher because they were just ridiculously cheap and the market is still playing catch up. And there are stocks that have trended hugely. They've, they've doubled, they've tripled, but the PE ratios are still low relative to their growth rate. So it's, it's well-earned justification trending. Local small caps. It's, it's not as much as the US. Our market never seems to embrace these themes as readily as, as happens in the US, but there is certainly some pockets where Australian small caps are gaining favor. Last week, portfolio analysts, we looked at some buying opportunities, both in America and in Australia. If you haven't been in portfolio analysts for a, a $1 14-day trial, I think you'll find a lot of value in there. That's it for this week. There's more information on the website. There's my email address, and I'll be back with you next Sunday. Cheers.